0: Studying the book of Malachi. If you have your Bibles, please open to Malachi chapter 2. And we have developed a series that we're studying that we're talking about seven key steps in your walk with God. This will be a seven-week series, and this is our fourth week. The first week and the first key step was not doubting that God loves us when times are going tough. And the second key step was... Keeping up with the details of our lives, the the little things that God expects for us to do, He expects for us to do them and not just say, oh, He understands. And last week we talked about understanding the principle of cause and effect. Things that we do bring about reactions and it has direct impact to our lives. And today the fourth step that we're going to talk about is guarding our marriages. Guarding our marriages. And so we're going to see that out of Malachi chapter 2. Now, We're going to start by just, I want to kind of remind us all of what we would see in some details of a Christian wedding. And I think everybody enjoys a good Christian wedding, right? You like coming to church and seeing people who love the Lord uh, pledge their lives to one another. And some of the details that we see in a Christian wedding is first and foremost is that a Christian wedding is only when two people are born-again Christians get married. If both people are not born-again Christians, then it's really not A Christian wedding. Uh, Do we have 1 Corinthians 7? Go ahead and put that up there. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39 kind of gives the instruction. It says, if you're going to marry, you can marry as long as it's in the Lord. And that's God's will for our lives. So a Christian wedding certainly is only with other Christians. Uh, A Christian wedding includes a vow. People come up here and they stand and uh, they make a vow. You make a vow to your wife. You make a vow to your husband. Uh, You say things like for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, and and all those sort of things. And and that really means something. Um, When you make your vow, not only are there people there to be witnesses, but probably most importantly, God himself is a witness to what you are saying because you're making your vow to one another but before God Almighty and with God as a witness you understand that as you are coming together you are coming together with this principle that is laid out in Genesis 2:24 that the two individuals are to become one and we get that all the way back from the very creation with Adam and Eve that the two are to become one and really the ultimate fulfillment of the two becoming one is is that you begin a family you begin a family, and, and you have children, and um, really a child is the ultimate application of two becoming one. Two different individuals then make one individual that has characteristics and, and uh, personality traits from each of the two parents, and it's a wonderful thing. And ultimately, when, when you make your vow and you do all this, you understand that it is a lifelong commitment. Y- your vows typically include something like, till death do us part. And so, you know, that's, that's just a good Christian wedding. I mean, that's the kind of things that we, that we see. And uh, when you're the pastor doing the wedding, you get, I mean, front row seats. I mean, you get to see him do it up close and personal. It's really, it's really a cool deal. But what I want us to see today in the last half of chapter two of Malachi is all these elements of a Christian wedding appear in Malachi. And so we're going to go back through the list, and, and I want you to see them. I'm just going to read first, through, um, starting in verse number 10 and uh, through the end of the chapter. Follow with me. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and with crying out, insomuch as he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion." And the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit. And let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, hateth, uh, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit. That you deal not treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? And so you come through this text, and we've seen before how it certainly applies to Israel. It's at a time when God is wrapping up his revelation of the Old Testament, and things aren't going well, and these things are phrased in the form of rebukes, for them to get right, but ultimately this theme of marriage works its way through. And so if we came back through our list, we would see that the wedding is to be only between believers. It says in verse 11 that Judah made this huge mistake by marrying the daughter of a strange God. So they went after wives of the lands of pagans that were not believers. Uh, You're to make a covenant to your wife. It says, The wife of thy covenant. In verse number 14, it says that God is a witness, and that's exactly what it says. The Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth. In verse 14, the two become one. It says in verse 15, and did he not make one? And you begin a family because it refers in verse 15 to a godly seed. And it's to be a lifelong commitment because it says in verse number 16 that God hates the putting away of the wife. When you break the covenant. Now, there's a lot in this chapter, and there's a lot that we could study. And I'm going to tell you up front that we're not going to be able to look at every detail of every word in Malachi chapter 2. But what we are going to do is we're going to look at the importance of guarding our marriages and its effect on our personal walk with God, because that's really the theme that we're taking coming through this book. So let's just pray, and we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, as we do look at these things, I do pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds. To see what you would have to say to each and every one of us. I pray that we would understand the importance of this very key step. And I pray that you would teach us to learn to walk with you better than we've ever walked with you before. Our most intimate human relationship on earth most certainly has to have an effect on our most intimate relationship of the entire universe. And that's with you. So help us to see that and help us to apply it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first point I want you to see and really the the real backbone of everything we wanna study today is your first point, the spiritual significance of marriage. You have to understand that a, a human marriage, certainly between Christians, has much greater impact than just the physical. It has spiritual significance. Without question, when you meet Mr. Wonderful, when you meet Mrs. Wright, when, when you finally tie the knot, when you, you know, your eyes are starry and twinkling and, and all that has a wonderful thing. And, and without a doubt, there's personal benefits, there's relational benefits, there's emotional benefits, there's physical benefits to marriage. But if you're Christians entering into such a marriage, it goes far beyond just that. So much so that if you don't do it right, if you don't guard your marriage right, it will affect your walk with God. And that's what we see in First Peter chapter three and verse number seven. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So fellows, if you're not treating your wife right, and there's a problem between you and your wife you will find direct consequence in your walk with the Lord. That's exactly what God is saying. And so what I want us to see as we get into this a little further is I want to remind a lot of you, because I know a lot of you already know this, and maybe some of you are new, and you don't know this, but I want you to see the picture. And the picture of all this comes from Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians chapter 5 is that passage of Scripture that is so frequently read at weddings. I want to go ahead and read it to you. So we're going to start in verse number 22. And in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, again, just by way of introduction, it kind of just describes how husband and wives are supposed to behave. And it's just a good manual, okay? So verse number 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So you have here, he says, This is a great mystery. And some time ago we studied the mysteries when we talked about stewardship, and we have to be stewards of the mysteries of God. And this would be one of seven mysteries given to the New Testament church. And the mystery is is that the church is the bride of Christ. And that's the comparison that it's given. It describes our relationship to Jesus Christ as a marriage. It's a mystery. It's now revealed. So when we say that God hates divorce, and and by the way, that term, if anybody says the Bible says God hates divorce, the only place you're going to find that is in Malachi 2.16. So when we say that, what I want you to understand is that it's much more significant than just the tragedy of a failed human relationship. It has far greater impact than just two people who ought to be able to get along and for some reason can't get along anymore. Because based on Ephesians 5 and the picture, and because of the spiritual significance of marriage, when your marriage fails, humanly speaking... You blow the picture of Christ and the church before all the world around you. How many times have you been to a Christian wedding and the pastor will stand up and he'll make a statement to that effect that this family, this young couple that's coming together will now be another testimony of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride for all to see. Have you ever been to one of those? And I've said it, so have you ever been to one I've been to? Okay, so what happens is when a marriage fails... Okay, for now, let's just set aside the consequences, humanly speaking, and dividing all the stuff, okay? When a marriage fails, you blow the picture. What you have actually done is you have blown God's testimony. You've blown God's testimony. So now God's testimony is stained. Is it God's fault that his testimony is stained? It's not God's fault. Do you think he's thrilled about that? That you've you've stained his testimony because because of your failed marriage? No, he's not thrilled about that. Do you think that because of that, you have stained his testimony? That it would affect your walk with him? Of course it would affect your walk with him. There's no question about it. That's why guarding your marriage is a critical step to continuing your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the end of any marriage, at the end of the day... It's not just a relational problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's always a spiritual problem. I mean, think about it. And this is all really, this is all really we ever do in, in counseling of marriages. All we really need to do is point the individuals to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you as Christian, we're talking about Christian people. If Christian people will each individually, husband and wife, maybe in a strained marriage relationship, if each will reconcile their hearts and fully submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ as individuals, both of them, then what you'll find is reconciling with one another is a piece of cake. And at the end of the day, your pastors are not to be experts in every detail of social interaction that is under the sun. Our job for you, our service to you, is to point you to Jesus Christ and to help you reconcile what's wrong with you with Christ so that you can reconcile with your husband and restore the testimony of God Almighty. That's how it works. So in Malachi, the tribe of Judah dumped their old wives and got new ones. That's what they did. And as anything in the Bible, I put in your notes, the physical represents the spiritual. The physical represents the spiritual. God called this dealing treacherously in verse number 11. It says that they profaned God's holiness when they dumped their first wife and got another one. Now, this is not just any first wife. They dumped their first wives who were Jews. They were believers, they were of Israel, they were of the children of God, and they went after strange women, women that were pagans, that were non-believers, daughters of a strange God is the way it says it in verse 11. Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 4, writing to the church at Ephesus says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Now, that sounds kind of like what Judah was doing, doesn't it? It sounds kind of like Judah had a first love. They had a wife of the covenant of their youth. They left that one and got a new one. Let me ask you something. When Jesus writes, and, and we have quoted what he says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, is he talking about something physical or something spiritual? You can say it if you want. He's talking about something spiritual. There's no question about it. You left your first love. Let me give you another example. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Entirely different context, but it's still a good example. Verses 6 and 7. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king. This is the nation of Israel desiring a king. Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. Notice. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. So even the otherwise very secular political move of this nation desiring a king has a spiritual significance. Because God says, you wanted a king like all the nations, pagan nations, by the way, when the truth of the matter is, all along, I've been your king. So you're leaving your first love for me And you're going after another one. And you know what? Sometimes God will just say, well, if that's really what you want, go ahead, if that's really what you want. That didn't work out so good for Israel, by the way. A man or a woman who's fully satisfied with their walk with the Lord will not violate the Scriptures in order to fulfill some new personal lust. Back to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. And did he not and did not he make one yet had he the residue of the spirit and wherefore one that he might seek a godly seed therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth I want to focus on that phrase therefore take heed to your spirit it's written in the imperative it's a command for you take heed to your spirit Because ultimately, it's a spiritual rottenness that produces these relational problems. Judah, in this case, should not have married Babylonian women. Because they would draw their heart away from God. It's the same problem that King Solomon had. Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 23, says this. Notice. Now, Nehemiah is a part of the group that's going back to Jerusalem after the the captivity. We'll see it again in a second. Nehemiah 1323 to 26. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. And I mean, you think other people are judgmental. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, Nehemiah was a dude. Okay, so let's read that again. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God. Listen, if we did more of that, there'd be a lot less messing around. Okay, I'm going to start again. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them the last time and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Verse 26, here's the key. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him... Did outlandish women cause to sin? I mean, Solomon, unquestionably, the greatest king of Israel. What about David? David was a man of war and had trouble his whole life. Solomon reigned Israel at its pinnacle. No man had more wisdom than Solomon. Solomon was an amazing, amazing man who had a wonderful start, but he blew it. And I love the King James phrase, outlandish women. Literally just means women from the land outside of Israel. These are other women from pagan lands who would have followed pagan gods. And they, because of their pagan history, because of their influence of godlessness, were able to even bring down, now Solomon, I mean, he kind of went overboard. I mean, he kind of, you know, I mean, he had a whole bunch of them. Okay, but it was, it was very bad, and they brought him down and caused him to sin. Similarly, I think this should be no surprise to you, you should not marry an unsaved person if you're a Christian because they will draw your heart away from God. It will affect your walk with the Lord. There's no question about it. So it's very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It is in the imperative. It is a command. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. By the way, there are several different ways to yoke yourself with an unbeliever, but without question, marriage would be one of them, wouldn't you say? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, or what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord Hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. That's the desire of his heart, to walk in and among you. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what should we do? Well, we talked about this before, weeks prior. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Well, what is the unclean thing? Well, in the context, the unclean thing are the unbelievers. And I will receive you. Verse 18. And will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Going into chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, notice, and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know a little bit about how we had a dead spirit, and God's Holy Spirit came to live inside our spirit, and That is a rebirth. It's a spiritual birth. Jesus called it being born again. If that's never happened in your life, Jesus extends that invitation to you today and every day. Come and be born again. Surrender to him. Confess your sins and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And you are reborn of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God has cleansed you and you are eternally secure forever. It's the greatest thing that you could ever do, ever bar none, no comparison to anything else. So, if the Holy Spirit is my spirit, how in the world do I have a filthy spirit? You ever thought about that? Well, I've heard a lot of really bad preaching on this. Let me just tell you in the context of what's being said, the filth of the spirit is not you, Christian. It's that unsaved rascal you're messing with. And he's saying, separate yourselves from them because they have filthy spirits by the way the bible tells us there are many spirits only one of them's holy only one of them's holy and you are to cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of god so the key is separation you got to keep your spirit pure and clean you're not walking with god if you don't right god wants to walk in your temple okay so before we go on i want to look at one other the And that's this, back in your notes again, a biblical definition of marriage. I want us to look at a biblical definition of marriage. We're gonna see it in 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he... Shall be one flesh, but he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. And then verse 18 starts with, and this is all we need for now flee fornication. Flee fornication. And then ultimately, this leads into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is the key chapter in all the Bible about marriage and divorce and remarriage and all those sorts of things. So, literally, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what we see is that anytime flesh joins flesh, We have a biblical marriage. It's also called fornication. Whenever that biblical marriage of flesh joining flesh is not accompanied by the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage is what makes it a a legal marriage. But without the covenant and just the physical act, God interestingly says, For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. That is the prescription for marriage. That's what we saw back in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve. That's what we just read in Ephesians 5 and verse 31 about husbands and wives. The exact same phraseology that he uses for marriage when people willingly go into it the right way is the exact same phraseology God uses when somebody just commits fornication. Because God's looking at this thing maybe a little different. Than modern society's looking at it, don't you think? So, therefore, any time for any reason that you Christian step out on God, it's called spiritual adultery. James chapter four and verse number four says, "Ye adulterers and adulteresses." He's not talking about physical; he's talking about spiritual. Why? Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So you need to guard your marriage so that you can walk with God. That's the spiritual significance. It's so clear. But we have to address some other things because I want to help you to really kind of get your mind around this subject while we're talking about it. And so our second point today is some clarification on divorce. I want to give you some clarification on divorce. Now, first thing we're going to do is look at how it's historically applied. Because what's going on in Malachi, as we saw before, is that we're about anywhere between 50 and 100 years after the time of the return from the captivity, okay? So the Jews have returned. They were 70 plus years, depending on the timing of their return, in the captivity in foreign pagan lands, So the children of God were living among the unbelievers of the world. When they returned, they returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. We just saw Nehemiah 13. And many had taken wives from foreigners. And God knows you shouldn't do that. Okay. Okay, Okay. good. Ezra chapter 10. Somebody will get it. Verse number 1. We saw Nehemiah, we see Ezra. Now when Ezra had prayed... And when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children. For the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God, notice, to put away all the wives and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord. I want you to notice Lord is small l. My Lord in the context is Ezra, not God. According to the counsel of, whatever you say, Ezra, we're going to do it. That's basically what they're saying. Please get that. So we're going to put away all the wives and such that are born of them, according to the counsel of Ezra and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage, and do it. Then arose Ezra, and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word. And they swear. So, swearing's in the Bible, just saying. Okay, so, here's what's going on. In Ezra, you have, a covenant, okay, that these people make, and they say we're making a covenant with God. They are promising God something, that they're going to put away their pagan wives. And why are they doing that? Well, they've been in captivity for so long, and now they're returning to their land, and their desire is, is to clean house, however it takes, in order to secure God's blessing for their future. And really that had more to do with a physical kingdom and houses and lands and all of that sort of thing. But nevertheless, what we have is, is they made a decision. We want to walk with God and we want a clean house to do it. Now they said that we're going to do it according to the law. Now that may get your attention. So you have to know that in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, go ahead and throw that one up. Here's the law that they would have been referring to, okay? In Deuteronomy chapter seven, when the Lord shall deliver them before thee, this is Moses telling the children of Israel, before they go into the land, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. They're gonna enter the promised land. He's like, take no prisoners, right? Make no covenant with them, uh, nor show mercy unto them, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shall not, thou shalt not, excuse me, give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son in other words before they ever went into the land god warned them and he said don't take wives of the pagans i want you to also notice that if you continue to read and all through the law what you will not find is what they did in ezra god god tells them don't get into the marriage with a foreigner don't get into the marriage with an unsaved person what he doesn't tell them is get rid of them if you did that, does not, that is not described in the law. The law does not say, dump the old one and get a new one. It does not say that. And that's a really important thing. And we don't have verse 4 up there, but if you were to look at verse 4 in Deuteronomy 7, basically it goes on to say why. Because the people of the pagans will turn your heart away from following God and cause you to serve other gods. And there's always a spiritual application. Okay, so that's Ezra. I want you to understand this. This is really important. All that is, is history. It's just history. That is not doctrine for you. So I want you to see that what was historically applied for you is practically forbidden. This act of putting away the old to get a new, even if they're unbelievers, is practically forbidden. This is not what the Bible teaches that we are to do. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 12. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife, so this brother he's a brother and he's married. If he hath a wife that believeth not, so he's got a, an unsaved wife and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And similarly on the other side, and if the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So God says, don't break up your marriage if it's already a done deal. You can't put your wife away and then expect to walk with God better as a result. You can't do that. That's that's not the direct consequence of putting your wife away, walking with God better. Yet also, we live in a real world and and I want to make a real clear balance and so we're going to look at this. At the same time, God is not saying... And I don't want you to giggle. I mean this. You're not stuck with your wife no matter what the circumstances or husband as the case might be. In other words, there can be circumstances which allow you to separate from your wife or your husband, right? And so that's what I want us to see. Some biblical grounds for divorce. And there's really only two. Matthew chapter 19. This is Jesus Christ. Starting in verse number three, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. That sets the context. And saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And the key word would be every. And he answered and said unto them, have you not read, which is a great answer by the way, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder, or let not man put away. They say unto him, well, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, didn't command, by the way, suffered, allowed you to put away your wives, But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, and here it is, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So the act of fornication, the act of a spouse stepping out on a current spouse and sleeping with somebody else By the way, the biblical definition of a marriage, what that stepping out spouse just did was they chose to marry another. That's what they chose to do. And when that happens, the spouse that was victimized has the opportunity to say, I can't continue in this relationship anymore and Jesus gives you an out. Except it be for fornication. And there's only one other Biblical reason that anybody should end a marriage if you're Christians. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. That comes on the heels of what we saw before. So if a Christian person finds themselves married to somebody else who is not a Christian or certainly their behavior is so egregious that it certainly appears that they're not Christians. I mean, at the end of the day, who really knows? But it says, if the unbelieving, they're not willing to reconcile, they're not willing to listen to God's word, they're not willing to get anything right, and they just leave, they ditch you, let them depart. I mean, what are you supposed to do, really? Chase them down, chain them, tie them to a piano? I mean, really? And God, who is merciful and kind, says a brother or a sister, the Christian one who's left behind, is not under bondage. Don't let other people put you under bondage. You are not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. Listen, I get it, man. It's a messy, messy world. Divorce happens. It's sad. But you know what? Sometimes it's unavoidable. You know what the real issue is? I put this in your notes. The real issue in a divorce, it's not just the writing of divorcement. The real issue is putting away. That's why he phrased it that way in Malachi. It's not just the writing of divorcement. God hates, not divorce. Yes, it's connected. I get it. He hates the putting away. That's what it says in verse 16 of Malachi. So that means God hates the initiating of a divorce. God hates the one who puts away the other. I mean, don't be the one who does that. Now, let me just say this, because again... There's a lot of us here and there's a lot of people with a lot of history and a lot of different things in life and I understand that, I do. Please understand, what we are doing is we are studying what Malachi 2 says. We are not currently going through a comprehensive manual on all relational problems. Yeah, pastor, but what if? Okay, well, we're just studying Malachi 2 for now. Okay, can, are we okay? I mean, we're just just a simple statement of what God clearly does not desire He clearly does not desire that you, believer, initiate the putting away of your spouse. That's what he does not desire. Let me just say as a word of help to you, if you find yourself in in a very strained relationship, if you're having trouble, man, talk to somebody and get some help because there may be a lot that need to be discussed, okay? I'm just trying to show you what Malachi 2 says. Do not leave here thinking that's it. There's nothing else. Are we cool with that? All right. All right, so God hates the fact that Judah, now this is not the man Judah, this is the tribe, okay? They had good Jewish women that were their wives, and they left them to marry pagans. And one of the reasons that it bothers them so much is because marriage produces the seed Right? The seed is the offspring. So, God wants to preserve what he says in verse 15, the godly seed. He wants to preserve a godly seed. So, doctrinally speaking, Judah is the tribe that physically brings about the lineage of the Messiah. Right? Since Genesis 3.15, right? All we've seen throughout the narrative of the Bible, if you take the Bible as a running story, what you find is the devil time after time, generation after generation, trying to ruin the seed because the promise is that the seed is going to come that will destroy him. But I want you to understand something because actually, technically speaking, Jesus is not born of the seed of Judah. He comes through the tribe of Judah through his stepfather, but the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus was, as it says in Genesis 3, The seed of a woman. Well, women don't have seed. Men have seed. And so he was born of a virgin. I want you to realize that even when we look in Malachi 2, biblically speaking, there is no such thing as godly seed among humans after the fall. There is no such thing. Ever since the fall, the seed has been corrupted, right? And we all inherit a sin nature. Therefore, it's got to point to something else. And most certainly, a practical application that we're going to see is creating sons of God who are born of incorruptible seed. And that's 1 Peter 1.23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. What's that? by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So practically speaking, as we read Malachi and make application to us at the end of the church age, what can we learn? Well, walk with God so that through you, many sons of God will be born again. He seeks a godly seed. And really, the only godly seed is the word of God that produces godly life, which is new life in Christ and It's because marriage is greater than just the physical. It's a picture. It's spiritual. It has implications that go on and on. And this issue of putting away and divorce can sometimes seem complicated, but it's really not that complicated. And I hope that some of that clarification has helped you. But there's one last thing I want us to look at and we'll be done for today. And that's your third point. Some counsel on dating. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about divorce. Let's talk a bit about dating because a lot of you are sitting here thinking, guard your marriage. Whatever. I <laughs> ain't got one of them. Okay. Well, are you ready? I know most of the younger people flank me out here, so I'm just going to kind of look straight. But I'm really trying to look to the sides. It's hard, though, because I'm not a, a lizard. Okay. So are you ready? This is really good. Everybody quiet. shh, shh. shh. This is really good. Forget the lizard comment. Okay. Right now, I am going to tell you everything that the Bible says about dating. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) Because the Bible says nothing, nothing Why is that? Why is it that the Bible says nothing? It is the book of life. It is the manual that describes life. Why would it leave out this whole portion? Well, a lot of you know. Because in the time and the era in which the Bible was written, and by the way, hundreds of years, right, There was no dating. They had the thing that young people hate and old people love. It's called arranged marriages. Your parents decided who you would marry. And when I was young, I thought it was terrible, and now that I'm old, I think it's awesome. (laughs) My grandparents, my mother's parents, you can ask my mother, Emigrated to this country in the early 1900s from the country of Macedonia. And they had an arranged marriage. And without boring you with the details, my grandfather came to the United States first. And after he arrived here, his family sent word this is a true story. His family sent word saying, on such and such a date, you need to go down to the docks and you need to pick up such and such a lady. She's going to be your wife. We have made an agreement with this family. Your wife is coming, arriving on this boat. Go pick her up. <laughs> and he did. And they lived happily ever after. And they lived long, happy lives. And I was a very young boy when my grandfather and grandmother, when they passed away, I was about seven. Seven. And my grandfather died first, and he was sick, and and he passed away. And my grandmother literally did what happens, sadly, but frequently. She had no more will to live. Life just doesn't matter without him. She loved him so much that within six months, and she wasn't sick, Within six months, she died too. Died of a broken heart, call it what you want. At the, end of a day, at the end of the day, I don't understand it medically, but there's something about somebody just doesn't want to live anymore and things in their body start shutting down, and that's what happened to her. She loved him so deeply. What are you trying to say? All I'm trying to say is you choose who you love. We want we want this you know this feeling this magic fairy dust and and it's just it just doesn't work that way you choose to love whomever you want and the feelings will come. But this modern version of dating is culturally and it's historically recent. It's culturally new on the scene. And and modern the modern version of dating. I will say, is risky. It's risky. Because now you are bounding into new territory which the Bible does not speak of. But but let me also say that just because it's new and just because it's different and just because it's risky does not mean, I mean this, it does not mean that it has to be evil. Right? It doesn't have to be evil. As long as you understand This point that I put in your notes, that dating is for the purpose of finding a mate. That is the purpose of dating. It's not to have fun. It's not to alleviate your loneliness. Dating is for the purpose of finding a mate. So let me just give you some good advice. Since the Bible's silent on this subject, I mean... Thus speak I, not the Lord. <laughs> and, and I think I have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Here's some good advice. Here's some good advice, kiddies. This is deep. You want to get your pencils out for this one. You marry who you date. Thank you very much. <laughs> you marry who you date. So, if you keep letting the stray dog follow you home day after day after day, and you keep feeding him and he keeps following you home day after day, eventually you just keep him. (laughs) Are you tracking with me? That's good advice, by the way. (laughs) No matter how nasty that dog is. You know what the problem is? Christian people date people that they know that they shouldn't. And they go too far. And then they regret it. But now they're involved. And they have a hard time stopping And I know the common philosophy is, well, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. I I just want to go back and and look at one point here in the middle of Malachi again in chapter 2 and verse 13. Because in Malachi, you know, they were really sorry. Verse 13, And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. So they're really sorry, man. Oh, this is terrible. But notice, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, or receive it with goodwill at your hand. And sometimes if you're into something and you know it's wrong, and it, you feel bad and you say you're sorry, and then you go back into it again, and then you feel bad again, and you say you're sorry, and you go into it again, and you feel bad, and you say you're Sorry. I can't help but thinking God from heaven is looking down and saying, stop saying you're sorry. Just stop doing it. Just stop doing it. Quit telling me you're sorry. 1 John chapter 1 is written to describe our fellowship with God. And, man, so precious to us is verse number 9. Right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, that, that's outstanding. And so, what should a, I ask people this all the time. What should a Christian do who sins? And the typical answer you're always going to get is, well, they should confess it. How do you know that, 1 John 1.9? 1, but let me tell you really the goal. The, really the goal is 1 John 2.1. You a couple verses later and it says this, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. Quit saying you're sorry. Just stop it. Modern dating is risky. But it doesn't have to be evil if you understand that the purpose is for finding a mate. And I always tell, I always tell singles this, regardless of your age. I do, and and, and I think a lot of people understand it. But as a person who's dealt with a lot of people with marriage problems, let me let me just tell you, if you're, unmarried today and you desire to be married which is a great desire it's always better to wish that you were married than to wish that you weren't it's always better to wish that you were than to wish that you weren't so i wish i didn't have to have any of it okay but you don't want to make a compromise and a mistake in order to get something that man you talk about out of the frying pan and into the fire. Okay, so we're kind of done. You know, if you're like me, you're like, wow, that, that's, that's kind of exhausting. <laughs> I think so, and I think the Lord would agree, and so we put in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ye say, wherein have we wearied him? And the answer is, well, When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? So when God keeps hearing from us, evil is good. Oh, he's really a good guy. Oh, but if you just knew her, like I know her. If by chance you know full well that your behaviors cross the line, that wearies the Lord. Oh, he delights in them. Oh, God just loves all people the same. Well, in the context that we're all sinners and need salvation, he does. But he doesn't love everybody the same in their sin. And this, where is the God of judgment? You know, this whole judgment-free zone that everybody wants to live in, I constantly go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11, which says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Why do people continue and continue and continue and continue in sin? Because they're getting away with it. Because they're getting away with it. If we went back to Nehemiah with all the beard plucking, man, I tell you, we'd shut her down. (laughs) Okay. If you're married here today, guard your marriage. It's the most precious thing that you got on this planet. And if you're not married today, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord for the right mate because... After salvation, certainly, it is the single most important decision you'll ever make. And so even if you're unmarried, the title, Guard Your Marriage, the one that you have or the one that you hope to have, will certainly be the next key step in your walk with God. Let's pray together.